electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Brian. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead today. Stocks are getting a pretty nice lift from better-than-expected earnings. Have you seen shares of Nike, by the way? Consumer confidence also beating expectations, but housing stuck in a deep freeze, and the Fed and the market are still on two totally different pages for 2023. We'll tackle it. Plus, rising rates have crushed the mortgage lenders, but we have the CEO of Rocket Companies on what his company is doing to try and soften the blow and attract customers. And there are changes coming to your 401k, courtesy of Congress and their $1.7 trillion funding bill. We'll tell you what you need to know and what was not in this big legislation. But let's start with today's markets. Christina Parts and Evelis is here with our numbers. Christina. You just mentioned who do you believe, Kelly? Do you believe Santa can come next week ahead of the year end? If we're going to talk historically, the last time the major averages closed in the red for December was 2018, with much of that action happening in the final four trading days of the year. You saw all major indices at least 6.5% higher, but the month still closed at lower. So today, for this month, if the market rallies like that, then we can actually wipe out the current losses of 6.5% for the S&P 500, for example. And this is on the month. So there is some optimism out there. And the S&P 500 is above that 3,800 mark. But today, stocks are up for a second day in a row after two major earnings reports. Or maybe we can say that that's the excuse to rally. You got Nike that beat expectations for the quarter, and that's helping other retail names. It's successfully clearing through some inventory levels. And then the second earnings report is FedEx. Despite weakening demand, the company beat EPS, earnings per share consensus, and has plans to continue cost cutting. And you can see shares are up almost 5%. Nike soaring 13.5%. Among the S&P laggers, because we just talked about some good names, we are seeing a few hotel names that stand out, like Host Hotels, Hilton, and Marriott. There are those are some of the weakest players on the S&P right now. Hilton down almost 2%, Marriott 1.5%. There's no major catalyst, but there was a strong report from Carnival. And there was some numbers, too, that said that after Thanksgiving, we started to see a little bit of a drop-off. So maybe that's part of the reason, or just happens to be a sector that's selling off. All right, Christina, thank you. Christina Parts and Evelis. All right, now the battle between inflation uh, over the Fed and the markets is alive and well. Senior economics reporter Steve Leisman is here with the very latest on this front, Steve. Yeah, Kelly, and it's showing no signs of closing. The Fed has embraced a higher for longer mantra, while the market says the Fed is probably making a mistake here and missing a drop in the inflation rate that's happening right now. The result, take a look, a Fed that sees the funds rate as high as 5.12 percent for 2023 and staying there and a market that has built in rate cuts and sees rates ending the year at 438, according to the latest Fed fund futures pricing. Key to the market view, looking at the relatively benign inflation of the past five months and annualizing that and not using the year over year rates, which include high rates in the past. Here's the numbers are calculated by Mike England for me by uh, of Action Economics. 7.1 is the year-over-year headline. 6% is the year-over-year core, X, food, and energy. But the last five months, headline is 2.5%. It'd be lower if you use the PCE calculation. Uh, core is 4.7%. Still elevated, but on the way down. Fed Chair Jay Powell, no doubt he's aware of these numbers, but he continues to base that hawkish outlook 
on a subset of the inflation data, the service sector X housing, where prices are, he believes, are driven mostly by wages. He thinks wages are not coming down until labor, labor market supply and demand are back into balance. That only happens by reducing consumer demand. So his view is that inflation is essentially entrenched unless the economy weakens substantially. The market says no, it's coming down now, Kelly. Yeah, and we're trying to figure out the path from A to B. Let's ask Mark Zandi uh, for more on the Fed's efforts to bring down inflation and the impact on the economy. Zandi is the chief economist at Moody's Analytics. And uh, Mark, it's great to see you again. Welcome, first of all. Thank you. Thank you. You're quite zen about the outlook. Utopian. <laughs> Utopian, I might add. Zendi. Uh, <laughs> Zendi. <laughs> You see gracefully uh, falling inflation next year, a Fed that's able to basically orchestrate a soft landing. Um, you know, I, I just I, I don't know. It just feels like the yield curve and some of these market signals are telling us we could be in for a much harder fall. Yeah, I think markets are anticipating a recession. That's how you get uh, the Fed funds rate moving south, you know, by the end of uh, end of next year. Uh, I, you know, I just don't think that's necessary. I, I mean, assuming stuff doesn't go off the rails here, assuming oil prices don't spike, uh, assuming that whatever happens in China doesn't lock down uh, supply chains again in any meaningful way. Um, I, I think we can get through the next 12, 18 months without a recession and get inflation back in. You know, the inflation numbers look feel pretty good to me. I mean, year over year CPI, 7%-ish, uh, feels like we're headed to about half that by the end of 23 and back close to the Fed's target on CPI. That's probably about 2.5% by mid Mark, let me ask you something because, you, you know, I know housing obviously is, is a core part of what you specialize in. We are starting to see real weakness in construction employment gains that might be about to tip over into layoffs on net for the first time. And as Steve and I were talking about, I mean, could this be one of the channels through which we start to see the labor market slow? And that is going to tell us the path from here to, uh, you know, any kind of low inflation readings or recession. Yeah, the labor market is slowing. I mean, you know, you look at the job growth numbers, uh, they are moderating pretty quickly. And my guess is uh, when we get all the revisions to the data and they're coming, it's going to be revised down and we're going to see, oh, uh, the job growth did slow meaningfully here. Uh, you know, a lot of folks are getting laid off. It's not showing up in the data yet because they're getting severance packages and they have to go through those before they can file for UI and show up in the employment statistics. So I, I think the labor market is sticking pretty close to a script where it's slowing and the labor market feels like it's easing. Uh, the unemployment rate is no longer falling and it's edging north. Uh, employment to population is headed south. So all the things are coming together to make me feel like certainly by this time next year, yeah, kind of sticks to script. We we should see wage growth rolling over, and uh, that should allow inflation to come back in. Steve, before I, I let you jump in, let's bring in your uh, com compatriot. What's uh, We just had a, a good 20-year bond auction. My good friend and colleague from Chicago. Yes, Rick Santelli is tracking the action. Rick, what do these results tell us? I'll tell you what, boy, they really lined up for this 20-year. We had 12 billion of reopened 20s, which means really 19-year, 11-month securities. The yield, 3.935 which was about a full basis point below the when issued market, lower yield, higher price. I gave this auction an A minus. And if you look at an intraday of 20 year, you can really see yields dropping at the top of the hour. Pretty much every metric was good. Uh, the, the rate was good compared to where it was trading when issued. A uh, bid to cover 2.68, well above 2.58, 10 auction average, best since April of this year. Uh, 8.7 go to dealers. So the buffet table was pretty empty. Dealers didn't get a lot of leftovers. That's always a good sign. 
and let's, uh, you know, 20 years isn't the longest maturity, but it's a pretty juicy yield. And as you look at that 10-year chart, many believe, you know, the amount of time we're going to spend at lower yields might be over for the rest of the year. So this was a bit of a surprise, but no matter how you slice it, Kelly, Steve, uh, this was a very solid auction as we get ready to wrap up 2022. Rick, stick back around uh, there for just a moment. I was I just want to have you jump in back here for another comment. Steve, this was significant because the 20-year can typically have kind of soft demand. It's not the market's favorite kind of bond offering. And maybe all of the people who've been lining up to tell us that they like some of the fixed income yields here, maybe this is emblematic. Here they are piling, you know, trying to blow the house down just to get in on this 20-year auction. I, I just had an image in my head of people running over Rick to go to the auction. Right. And I can... Because give me some more of that 20-year paper. Yeah. It's hard to get in your brain people who want to do that. And I get it because they have maturities that they have to kind of – They have obligations yeah. that they have to – But, you know, you're sitting there. You can get a six-month for 470 But, of course, then you have the risk of rollover. That, that's sure. going to run out over six months. Um, I just want to get back to the inflation story here and ask Mark. Mark, is this – two, two things. Is the five-month annualized a better way to look at it because you're, you're leaving out some of the stuff that happened a year ago that's not happening right now? And the other question is about whether uh, Powell is too fixated on this services, uh, 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 core services, ex-housing as the reason that's animating his hawkish view right now. Yeah, Steve, I mean, I think if you want to look at for like turning points in statistics, like the inflation statistics or the employment statistics, you can't just look at the year over year. I mean, the year over year is important, but, you know, three month uh, annualized growth, six month, five month. I mean, I think that's very helpful. And you, you showed it. I mean, inflation is clearly moderating here. So, you know, I think we're moving in the right direction. Still, again, kind of sticking to script. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, Powell, Chair Powell is focused on core service inflation because that's the one thing he can have some impact on, right? He can't affect oil prices. He can't affect what's going on in China and supply chains. He can't affect rent growth and the cost of housing services, but he can affect labor markets, wage growth, and ultimately core services. And he's focused on that. By the way, I, I think, you know, it, it, even if he had my forecast for inflation, you know, which is, as you said, pretty zen. I'd be talking like him. I'd say, you know, uh, we got a lot of work to do. A lot of things got to come together. I, I'd be saying the same same thing to make sure yeah, that but inflation saying is, it is one down. thing. Doing it is the other. And that's where we get into the discussions every morning with, I don't know, Rick is still there. He is. Then, he's here. But the idea of because because the, the, there's one forecast, which is What's the Fed going to do? And then the other one is, is it going to be a big mistake? Right. Because that's another thing that's embedded in the gap between the market and the Fed is not only do they have a different inflation outlook, they also have an outlook that the Fed's about to screw up here. Rick, what do you say about that? You, you interpret these signals as better than anybody. You know what? Everybody's hanging their hat on some of the research coming out of the Philly Fed. Uh, it's been a week since they put out a report saying that 33 states plus D.C. have job growth much too strong based on what they see. So the Bureau of Labor Statistics for a four and a half month period from March on sees about 1.25 million jobs. But Philly says it's really only 10,500 jobs. And Steve knows that it's the March uh, release of the February jobs report that gives us the benchmark revisions. And I'm, I'm sure that Mark would agree with this. Can I just interrupt, Rick? Right. I just want, I want to interrupt. You, I spent an hour on the phone with the guy who calculates yeah. that data from the Philly Fed. I'm going to do a story on it tomorrow. <laughs> it's a very interesting story. Um, I'm not going to spill the beans right now. Rick, you're right to point it out is all I'll say. Mark, what it's were you? It's overstated, though. Oh, it's no, overstated. No, it's it's overstated. Methodology, there's a calculation. Methodology is different. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, Atlanta Fed's never always right. Methodology's different, but everybody needs to be aware of it. I agree. I agree, you. Rick. I agree. It, it, it's making a case for a slowdown, but it's overstating the case by orders of magnitude. There's seasonal adjustment issues with the calculation. No, Mark, Mark just, to, just to correct, my take on that is the market and the Twitter sphere has overstated the case because the guy doing the data, they're not okay, overstating it. They're fair saying enough. it's one quarter's worth of data. It was yeah. dramatically understated in the prior quarter. It's overstated now. Now I'm giving away the story for tomorrow. <laughs> but, and, and so it could be a huge signal of a turning point. But the guy who puts the data together says, I need another quarter to know. Well, and the other thing, some of the states, and I know this because I, I began my career as a regional economist fixated on that data and worried about <laughs> how to measure it. Some estates is not the same as the national data, by, and it can be at points in time by orders of magnitude. So it, the, the job market's slowing, and I expect provisions down, but nothing compared to what but, that data would you know, seemingly suggest. Do we have time to get to, Rick, the question about is it, it, how much of a mistake is the market building in right now? Well, you know, the, I, I, I want to ask Rick that question, Mark. Oh, okay. Sorry. Sure. Yep. You know what, Steve? I think that the market has a definite opinion about recession and a definite opinion about us drawing capital flows even in a global recession. Huh. But I do think that story has helped fuel some of the buying that pushed us down in yield. But as you can see, we've started to come back a bit. And I think that the Fed guidance, of course, is on one side of the equation and the market, along with the notion of what Philly Fed says and what that may mean for further BLS reports down the road is kind of at odds with each other. But in my opinion, the market does believe a recession's coming and the market believes the Fed's going to go too far. And Zan Mark Zandi still, you say no, no way. Well, no, well, I'm confused by the markets. I mean, which market? I mean, okay, the bond market and the yield curve, maybe yes, but the equity market yield doesn't curve. seem to be. Come on. No, no, Tenure, no yields. The, the, the high yield of four and a quarter. They're at 366. But, but Rick, Rick, the bond market includes the corporate bond market, and corporate yield, yield spreads are below uh, their typical average You know, through history. There's no sign well, that's of That's default risk, Mark. That's, that's default risk being very low, which is not much of a recession indicator right Never now. Never talk we, to traders that are interested in yield enhancement. They're the craziest group of traders you'll ever meet, Mark Zandi, and they think they can dance between <laughs> the raindrops. Yeah. They really well, what do. What about the equity market? The equity market's down 20% from its all-time peak, and that's all interest rate. There, there's the equity no market, the equity market it, that's easy. The equity market believes that inflation's historically high, and the bond market believes inflation is peaked, and there you go. Tug oh, okay, war. that's my point. Which market? You know, so I'm not so sure, and uh, and uh, that the yield curve is the B. I would not be the slave to the yield I'm curve. I'm pretty sure. I think I would have to bet yeah. against the Fed's forecasting. Sorry, I, and I think that's going to. I agree. I agree with that. That yeah. betting against the question is how do you make the bet? Is the bet that they're? There you go. I mean, I think that I, I'm going to leave it there. But that's it, it is it is for sure the curve Fed will inversions. Be wrong. The best way to make that bet. What is that? Curve inversion. Curve inversion. Right. Curve inversion trades. Got I think that's the way you play. The market almost certainly has this right in terms of the inversion. The question is, why does it have it right? Does it have it right because inflation falls? Does it have it right because the Fed screws up and creates a recession? Well, and, and we'll leave it there with the, the trillion dollar. I love this. Guys, thank you all. Mark Zandi, Rick Santelli, sure. Steve Leisman, and to be continued, we'll yeah. say. Coming up, shares of rocket companies down 45% this year. Rising rates have obviously put huge pressure on them. The CEO joins us with the state of mortgage lending and what they're doing to entice more buyers. Plus, for all this talk about clean energy, coal has been making a huge comeback, and it's helped companies like this to massive gains this year. The name and whether the trend will 
will continue. And as we head to break, let's get a quick look at the markets seeing strong gains today. The small cap Russells are actually in the leadership up 1.9%. The Dow up 1.5% or 509 points. And the 10-year Treasury still sitting around 3.67%. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back, everybody. Existing home sales dropped for the 10th straight month in November. Prices, interestingly, still on the rise. It's not all bad news in housing today. The mortgage market saw a surge in demand last week. Diana Olick is here to break it all down for us. Diana? Well, Kelly, existing home sales in November fell much more than expected and much more than the usual seasonal declines. Sales dropped 7.7% to the slowest pace since 2010, and that was during the foreclosure crisis. That's with the exception, though, of a very brief drop at the start of the pandemic. Now, these numbers are based on closings, so contracts signed likely in September and October, and that's when mortgage rates hit their recent highs, over 7% on the 30-year fix. They have since come down to the lower 6% range, but that would not be reflected here. Now, supply is still super tight at just 3.3 months, but it actually increased slightly in November from a year ago. That kept the heat under prices, up 3.5% from a year ago to the highest November price on record going back to 1968. One interesting note is that the share of all cash sales rose slightly while the investor share dropped, meaning more owner occupants are now using cash rather than getting a mortgage at higher rates. And you can see that, of course, in the mortgage application numbers. We did finally see a surge in refinance demand last week, up 6% from the previous week, and that's thanks to the drop in rates. But demand from home buyers was flat and down 35% from a year ago. Mortgage rates have popped back up this week, about a quarter percentage point just from last Thursday, Kelly. Wow, true. All right, Diana, thank you. Mortgage lenders have been hit hard by rising rates and slowing sales. Rocket companies, they, you know them, they're behind Rocket Mortgage and Rocket Homes. They're no exception. The stock down 45% year to date. To entice buyers, they're offering mortgage buy-downs. Diana's been reporting all about this. It reduces monthly mortgage payments by about a percentage point for the first year of the loan. Joining us now with more on that and the state of housing in 2023, Jay Farner is vice chair and CEO. Jay, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Yeah, well, or, uh, happy holidays. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So the unique thing about what you guys are offering is you're actually paying people, is that right, to uh, contract, to do these buy-downs? How does this work? 
Well, we launched our Inflation Buster program a few months ago to help clients who are still wanting to buy a home, especially in the first year. You know, you buy a home, there's some uh, fix-up that you might want to do, you've got to purchase furniture, there's a moving cost, and so giving them a slight break on their mortgage payment in that first year, we thought would really uh, help move uh, buyers along. Uh, but they're getting uh, approved on a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, and for the next 29 years, they're locked, uh, locked into a fixed rate. So a program to help you get into a new home, but still a great, safe program for clients. Tell me, it's such an interesting time to be steering this company. On the one hand, you can try to go more into fintech or other kinds of spaces to diversify, but then that raises your expenses. It has uncertain execution risk. Or you stick with your bread and butter mortgages, try to reduce costs, maybe wait out the cycle a little bit. What's your thought process? Yeah, great question. Uh, really shows how, how you're thinking about the space. I think we're really one of the only companies making significant technology investment right now to change the game. If you think about our business, uh, you can view it as a transactional business. There's the cost to acquire the client, and then there's the lifetime value of the client. The greater the lifetime value, the lower the cost, the more you can grow market share. And so for us, when we think about Rocket Money, the new purchase plan that we've rolled out, our Rocket Dashboard, these are all technology tools that allow us to bring clients in, keep them engaged, whether it takes five months, 10 months, two years to buy a home. We can confidently market, we can grow market share, uh, but that means we've got to continue to invest. Lucky for us, we've had some great years. Uh, we're very smart about our balance sheet, and so we've got the cash to make these investments. And so how long, so what, what should we expect from Rocket in the next couple of years? More initiatives to diversify or more ways of using that cash to try and steal whatever customers are in the pot right now for mortgages to make sure that they are going to be Rocket customers? Yeah, look, I think 2023, we're going to continue to see uh, elevated interest rates. So the market may be closer to a $1.5, $2 trillion mortgage market. That's okay. With the initiatives that we're rolling out, we'll see increased conversion. We'll grow market share as we see other people continue to pull back. So I think 23 is a really strategic year for us. Then we get into 24, 25. We see some relief in interest rates, and all these great investments will really pay off uh, as we continue to grow, uh, grow our market share and engage with our retail clients across all 50 states. And your app has been a calling card. We all obviously well aware of the commercials and, and the publicity that, that that's garnered and the success that it's had. But some say a better approach in the long run might be to have a lot more local presence uh, to work on the ground closer to where those you know home buyers are helping them through those mortgage decisions. Have you thought about that? It seems like now would be probably the wrong time to, to increase you know, uh, headcount at scale. But are you going to stick with the approach that we've seen so far? Yeah, what you're talking about is what do buyers need? What do sellers need? So we've got Rocket Money, we've got Rocket Homes. It's about bringing value to those consumers. Now, traditionally, one way that people are able to do that is be on the ground. But what we found is with technology, with our apps and so forth, we can deliver a better purchase experience than anyone else. And that's what you're going to see us do in 2023. Uh, all of our team members, all of our technology, all of our product strategy group, our marketing group focused on making sure that we close loans faster, that our approvals are the best ones out there, and that we become the largest purchase lender in this country. So we've demonstrated that for uh, almost 37 years now, that we can continue to grow from a centralized position. And you'll see us lean in and continue to do that as we go forward. What, what do you say? I mean, you're, you're coming into Christmas time, holidays, and I'm sure people are just going to be asking you, like, Jay, what's going to happen with the housing market? Are, are prices going to drop? Am I going to get a great deal? You know, what? I, I'm just curious, kind of, you are on the front lines of this, and this is the front lines for the rest of us in terms of where the economy is going. And yeah. are we just in a deep freeze or, or what? How would you describe conditions? And where are the opportunities for maybe homeowners and those who are still on the sidelines? I think things will pick up a bit in the spring. I'll tell you, 
Inventory, and we talked about it, I, I heard your, uh, your reporter here just before I got on, inventory is the biggest issue. There are still first-time home buyers out there. We're the, we're the largest lender to first-time home buyers who want to purchase a home. Yeah. They can't find one. Why aren't people moving up? Well, they've got tons of equity in their, in their property today, so they've got that, that money to do the down payment, but what they're not wanting to do is take on that larger mortgage payment. And for the last few years, they've been able to move up and actually have the same or reduced mortgage payment. Right. Now that rates have gone up, that's slowing down the second and third time home buyers. You, you heard some people doing cash right now. We need to see those second and third time home buyers start to get back in the market, creating Turnover. more inventory, and then the first time home buyers can jump in. Is there anything a company like Rocket can do you know, to make that happen? Well, you're going to see some uh, initiatives from us in the spring that will allow people to save even more money when they're buying and selling homes. And I think that will allow us to grow that purchase market share. Very interesting. And maybe a, a solution or a help uh, for the whole space while you're at it. Jay, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. You bet. Thanks for having me. Jay Farner with Rocket Companies. Coming up, so much for going green. The use of coal is surging. We'll dig into the numbers and why the dirty fuel is back. Plus, what do changes to retirement, a TikTok ban, and a Boeing deadline all have in common? They're all in the huge omnibus spending bill. We'll dig into its implications and whether Congress will be able to pass it as infighting amongst the GOP ramps up. Don't go anywhere. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Up 588 was the session high. We're about 100 points off that level right now, but some pretty strong gains. And you could stretch to find a reason, or you could just say uh, we've had a spring back after a series of declines here. NASDAQ's up 1.5% today. Here are some of the movers we're watching. Carnival is higher after reporting a smaller-than-expected loss. They missed on revenues. Their first quarter guidance came in light, but customer deposits hit a quarterly record. Investors are in the buying mood, and the shares are up nearly 5%. Six Flags also up on the announcement that Land and Buildings has accumulated at a 3% stake. That's an 11% pop for six. The activist firm has pushed for management changes and a spinoff of the company's real estate holdings. We're also watching Netflix higher thanks to Wednesday Adams. The series was the second highest weekly streaming debut ever for Netflix, which is up 3.5% today. These shares are up more than 80% from their 52-week low back in May. That is a striking turnaround. They're just under 300 right now. Let's get to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Tyler? All right, you got it, Cal. Here we go. Here's your news update at this hour. White House preparing for the arrival of Ukrainian President Zelensky. He landed outside of Washington in the past hour. First up is a meeting with President Biden, followed by a joint news conference and a nighttime speech, prime time, in front of Congress. And just before Zelensky's arrival, Biden announced $1.85 billion in new aid for Ukraine. It includes a Patriot missile battery and precision-guided bombs for fighter jets. Now, the Kremlin has warned there may be, quote, consequences if the U.S. gives more advanced weapons to Ukraine, like that Patriot missile system. On Capitol Hill, Senate Majority Leader Schumer urging federal senators to pass more aid for Ukraine. They are set to vote on a spending package that includes $45 billion in emergency funding for Ukraine. And along the U.S.-Mexico border, thousands of migrants have set up camp 
seeking shelter from the brutal cold. They are waiting for the Supreme Court to rule on restrictions that have prevented many from seeking asylum in the United States. An ongoing story there, Kelly. All right, Tyler, thank you. We'll see you soon. Tyler Matheson. Still ahead, everything is awesome, today at least, for Nike and FedEx. Their results were stronger than expected. The stocks are up. Consumer confidence blew forecasts out of the water. Inflation expectations are falling. So how should you position now? We'll discuss up next on The Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange. Look at this rally, and Nike and FedEx may have had something to do with it. Last night, better than expected earnings from both. Raising hopes earnings season might not be as bad as feared. The Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ up about 1.5% and positive for the week. Still only Wednesday. Does this change the recession narrative, or should investors still hold on to value over growth heading into 2023? Joining us now, Charlie Babrinskoy is vice chair of Ariel Investments, and CNBC contributor Shannon Sakosha is CIO of SVB Private. Welcome to both of you, Charlie. It's good to see you again. And you've been pounding the table. The Fed's going to make a mistake here, and I think the market is totally coming around to that point of view. So, what do you make of the action the past 24 hours, and as we look to head into next year? You know, it's a little bit like watching a football game on the Internet where they show the probability of win on the (laughs) side. And if your team looks like they're going to win and then they throw an interception, all of a sudden that probability goes down. I have been predicting that I have been saying the chance of a recession is modestly over 50 percent. I think the last number I gave you was about 70 percent for next year. Based on today's numbers, I got to bring that number down a little bit. The argument that we're not going to have a recession is that the consumer is in very good shape. The consumer's balance sheet is in very good shape. It's hard to go into a recession when you have a very strong labor market. uh, And that's what we have right now. But on the other side, we still have this Fed, which I do think is highly probable of making a policy mistake. So I'm going to adjust modestly down and say the chance of a recession next year is now about 60%. Slight tangent, but I hate those probabilities, Charlie, because we're all watching the game and then the facts change and then the prediction changes. I'm like, this prediction was worthless. It's like it's like the Fed dots. They just tell you what you already know. It's not worthless. As John Maynard Kane once said, what do you do when the facts change? I change my opinion. What do you do, Senator? And that's what's happened here. If your quarterback throws an interception in the fourth quarter, the chance of you winning goes down a little bit. And right now, (laughs) if you have great corporate earnings, the chance of a recession does go down. Yeah, but I want him to tell me the quarterback is going to throw a reception uh, interception. (laughs) Shannon, let's turn to you. Uh, You're long a bunch of different stocks here, feeling, I guess, still pretty confident about the economy that Charlie's describing. Maybe he feels a little bit better about now today as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's there's sort of two sides to the story here for 2023. I think the first half of the year is going to be rather difficult. And and I am not taking as much uh, comfort, I guess you could say, in the consumer confidence number today. Consumer confidence uh, and consumer spending are not nearly as correlated um, in real life as you think they would be. Uh, and so I look out over the course of the second half of the year, and even if the consumer remains robust, I worry about the rest of the components of GDP. Um, you know, we're not going to have any sort of positive impact from fiscal spend. We're certainly not going to have any positive impact from from fixed asset investment asset investment as it relates to housing. And so there's really this this one sort of outstanding piece if you will in terms of manufacturing capex that could be potentially a catalyst to help support GDP growth into the back half of next year. Um, I do worry a little bit about 
you know, underestimating um, the long-term lagged effects of these financial conditions that we're experiencing now. Um, and, and so I think with, with our view is that really looking at companies that have some secular tailwinds that can engineer their own growth, because I continue to think that both multiple expansion as well as margin expansion are going to be really tough to come by in 2023. I mean, you both sound like you're a little bit singing from the same hymnal in the sense that you know, and everybody has to be right now. You know, the only thing that's going to work in this environment are companies that have pricing power and moats and just good, strong businesses. But Shannon, some of the names on your list would traditionally have been thought of as growthy. You know, Amazon, a high conviction name, if it still is. Um, Netflix, for instance. Is it because, to Charles' point, the facts have changed? Those businesses are not what they once were. Those multiples are not what they once were. And that's why you can feel comfortable owning them here? Uh, well, I think multiples have definitely come down, but there could be some continued compression. And certainly, you know, you have to look at your overall portfolio. What are you willing to pay up for? Is there going to be an expectation that all of the companies in your portfolio are going to come back down to the mean? And, and I think that that's where there's a little bit of divergence in our view. We believe that it is going to be critical to be invested in companies that are able to grow top line absent strong GDP growth. But I think, Kelly, the important point is here is that those aren't necessarily all in the quote-unquote growth sectors. And so I think looking at areas like healthcare, for instance, a traditional defensive, really, if you look historically, can provide you with opportunities for innovation and growth in a sector that might hold up a little bit better if we are starting to increase our fears of recession. All right. And Charlie, we have you know more important stocks to talk about, but I see that you have abandoned the Vegas bubble for the Knicks. Is that right? I'm changing my emphasis. So I've been emphasizing Madison Square Garden Entertainment, which owns the Madison Square Garden and owns the Sphere. And I would now say that I want to emphasize Madison Square Garden Sports, which owns the teams, yeah. the Knicks and the Rangers. And yesterday's sale of the Suns for $4 billion gives us confidence that our estimate of the Knicks at over $6 billion means that this stock is worth well north of 200, probably $250 a share. Wow. And it's trading at a big discount to that. So historically, I've talked to you about the real estate. Yeah. I'm going to emphasize now the sports franchises where there is a lot of value. It's a great anecdotal uh, sort of move there. 170 is where we're, we're trading uh, right about. Just have to ask you as well before we let you go, why Goldman? You know, this is kind of a battleground stock. People are pretty down on the banks. A lot of challenges with their consumer business now. Very cyclical. And we seem to be in a kind of a down moment of the cycle. Trading at nine times earnings, just a hair over book value. I was an investment banker at Solomon Brothers and Citigroup for 21 years. The name we respected the most was Goldman Sachs. That is still true. They still have the best talent. They have excellent trading relationships. And they have a growing consumer business, which you can get for nine times earnings. This is a very high-quality company trading at a very reasonable price. All right. We will leave it there. Thank you both very, very much today, Charlie Babrinskoy and Shannon Sakosha. Still ahead, why coal isn't for the naughty kids this year. It's not about your stockings. It's about powering the planet. The world is on pace for record consumption this year. Record. After all the moves that have happened, we'll explain why and who's benefiting next. Welcome back. In a year of global energy problems, crises and surprises, this one may be the most surprising of all. The use of coal is soaring. Global usage is on pace for its highest year on record. And of course, here to discuss why, where it's going and who's benefiting, Brian Sullivan. Brian, this has been huge for these stocks that we thought were long gone. It's Let's, dare I call it random and interesting, Kelly? Can I say that on <laughs> the course, exchange? Yes. All right. Coal use, folks. Coal is at a record high this year. 
The International Energy Agency is saying that global coal use is going to be up more than 1%. 1% doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're already high, that's a new record. In fact, let's measure it in weight. The IEA says coal use should hit 8 billion, with a B, tons this year. And if so, got a couple days left of the year, that would break the previous record of coal use set in 2013. All right, what? Why is coal so hot? Well, number one, it's a cheaper option. Okay, number two, you had a lot of weird weather. You had a lot of heat. You had a lot of drought. You had some some lack of wind. What does that mean? Well, with there's drought, no hydro, you need more coal. If it's too hot, you got to run the air conditioners, of course. And if there's no wind, you got to get the power from somewhere. And it's not here. Really, this is a China and India story, a little bit Indonesia as well. Much of coal use growth coming globally. China, we know they're building huge new coal capacity. They had power outages last year. They're paranoid about running out of energy. Coal use here in the U.S. also still way larger than you think. Kelly, look at this. The electricity generation mix a couple hours ago in what they call the mid-continent ISO, independent systems operator, you could see it's about 40% coal. Now, this will be wound down over coming years, we are told. But for now, coal, look at that, coal around the world and in America is like the hottest asset class. Right. So here's, you know, raises so many questions about whether you should just invest in everything people are trying to get rid of, because apparently they will not be successful. But a lot of this also seemed to do with this unique shortage of energy around the world and the ripple effects of that. Is it going to last into 2023? Do we know? I mean, is it going to have to be a permanent part of the the energy mix solution? It, I'm thinking for, about this from the stock's point of view, which yeah. have had such a run up. Where in the world are we talking about? I'm confident enough to say that 2023, yes. Well, in a year, we're not going to change anything. Here, here's the thing. If you read about energy transitions, as I have been for years now, they take way longer than you think. You can like it or not, but you can't disagree with history. They can take 100 years, right? The rest of the world just wants a little bit of what we've had which is reliable energy, turn on the heat, turn on the air conditioning, right? We talk about the danger of heat, heat stroke, have air conditioning. Cold kills more people worldwide than heat. Well, that's Doesn't insane. get any attention. Cold is a much bigger killer than heat, so you want to be able to use the heat. By the way, you referenced prices. Prices have come down off their peak. But look at these stocks. Peabody, yeah. Consol Energy, Arch Coal. They've just printed money for investors this year. Yeah. Not sure those kind of returns will continue, Kelly, but hey. Exactly. And so I, then I guess the main thing to watch, if you're looking at this and going, you know what, I should have been in these names for this year. Brian's telling me we're still going to have cold demand for next year, you know, but but do we have to go back and say, well, what are the stockpiles for nat gas in Europe? I mean, is that the kind of the key determining factor here for this global pinch point? Well, first off, can you show me a major Wall Street firm recommending coal stocks? Mrs. Evans, have I got yeah. a hot stock for you? <laughs> <laughs> ITT and coal. I mean, right. what year is this, right? It's hard to believe. So I think your, your thesis about buy the stuff other people are dumping, because if it's still being utilized, the people still making it, you can hate the story. Yeah. But it's true. It's not my story. It's the IEA, the EIA, and any other number of Energy-related acronyms, Kelly. I, everyone's getting coal in their stocking and, and liking it this I, year. I'm not. I've been <laughs> nice. I'm nice. Brian, thank you very thank much. Thank you. Brian Sullivan. Still ahead, the omnibus spending bill includes big changes for retirement plans. Can Congress help you stash away some extra cash in the new year? All you need to know next. Welcome back. A huge omnibus spending bill could be the final measure passed by this Congress. And buried within it are actually some big changes for retirement plans. Let's get to Elon Moy with the latest on what it means for you, Elon. 
And Kelly, Washington wants to encourage Americans to save more money, and it's close to passing a bipartisan bill that could help households grow their retirement income and guard against financial emergencies. The SECURE Act 2.0 would require companies to automatically enroll new workers in a 401k plan starting in 2025. Now, employees can still opt out if they want, but by making this a default, workers are expected to increase their retirement savings by $40.5 billion over a decade. The bill would also allow companies to set up emergency savings accounts for workers who can fill it up through automatic payroll deductions. Devin Miller is CEO of SecureSafe. It's already working with businesses to provide this benefit. And he said many even kick in a matching contribution. Right now, emergency savings is the number one financial priority for the average American. And right now, it's the thing that everybody wants and needs more of. And so credit to both parties to to recognize that and to try and find solutions to help people save more faster. The SECURE Act also raises the required age for taking distributions from your 401k, increases the limit for catch-up contributions, and requires companies to give more part-time workers access to their retirement plans. Now, this bill is part of that sprawling $1.7 trillion deal to fund the federal government. So, Kelly, it is expected to pass once Congress signs off on the whole thing, hopefully this week. Back over to you. And Elon, say that one more time so people will be uh, automatically enrolled in these plans. But does it, it change the amount? Uh, for, so, so for everybody else, does it change the levels that we can put into these plans or anything like that? Uh, Yeah, so it does both of those things, Kelly. Starting in 2025, companies will have to enroll new workers into plans with percentage uh, percentage contributions anywhere from about 3 to 10 percent, increasing every single year. Got it. Um, And in addition to that, it would also allow people to uh, increase the catch-up contribution limit. Got it, got it. Okay, Elon, thank you very, very much. Elon Moy following all the twists and turns of all this for us. What else is in the nearly $2 trillion bill? And perhaps most importantly, what's not? Let's bring in Libby Cantrill now. She's head of public policy at PIMCO. And Libby, there's quite a few things of interest here. Let's start with the 401k stuff. I mean, should we expect all of this to pass on its current form? Yes, it, it looks it looks very likely to pass, Kelly. And um, this has been a priority for um, many senators, uh, particularly Senator Portman uh, and Congressman Brady, both of whom are retiring at year end, uh, particularly the auto enrollment provision, as Elon was just uh, describing. But just this 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 entire package of secure 2.0 has a lot of bipartisan support um, and is, you know, you know, will will pass in its current form. Uh, this is sort of typical of Congress, A, waiting until the 11th hour to pass a big funding bill, but then B, attaching you know, several things uh, to it. And again, Secure 2.0 in its current form uh, is very likely to be passed by both chambers and signed into law, most likely by the weekend. Also interesting to me, they're going to raise the age for uh, required distributions from 401k plans to 73 in 2023 and 75 by 2033 uh, could be a positive again for people who are looking to, to push that off a little bit. Um, also, a win in here for Boeing, it looks like a loss for TikTok, which maybe could be a win for rivals like Meta. We'll see. What are some of the other uh, implications for investors, do you think? Yeah, that's that's right. There was a waiver uh, that is um, going to benefit Boeing that they were certainly lobbying for behind behind the scenes. A ban on federal uh, devices from having TikTok on it. That is sort of a first step. Uh, doesn't go far 
far enough, according to some members of Congress, but I think does sort of uh, indicate the direction of travel around sort of future prohibitions around TikTok and, and likely other uh, sort of China-based technology. Um, other things, the Electoral Count Act uh, was included. This also has bipartisan support. Again, doesn't go as far as some folks who were uh, wanting a, a bigger kind of comprehensive voting rights bill, but does likely um, address some of the issues that we saw on January on January 6th. Um, does not include, though, I think importantly for kind of our world in terms of the fixed income world, any sort of uh, addressing of the debt ceiling. So that will hmm. be punted to a, a later day. Uh, and as you said, there are lots of other things it does not include, which are also important for the market. Yeah. And corporate taxes are going up, uh, it sounds like. Corporate taxes are going up, and this is despite a lot of advocacy for some of the from some of the the main business uh, business groups, the Business Roundtable, yeah. the Chamber of Commerce, and lots of other companies who were advocating for an extension of immediate expense of R and D expense. Uh, that was not included in the bill, and that means it reverts to amortizing over sure. over five years. So effectively, a tax increase for many corporations. A three percent hit to EPS next year, uh, Goldman saying. Libby, thank you very very much. What's in? What's out? What it means for your money, Libby Cantrell from PIMCO today. Still ahead, no job security, no problem. Our latest CNBC workforce survey found most workers are still surprisingly relaxed heading into the new year. Will it last? That's next. Welcome back. Want to get to one more thing before we go. A spate of layoffs across the tech sector is not actually spooking workers in other fields, at least so far, according to the latest CNBC workforce survey. Sharon Epperson is here with the results. Sharon? Well, Kelly, you know, with relatively low unemployment and recent wage growth, only about two out of five workers, 39 percent, are concerned that they or someone in their household will be laid off or lose their job in the next few months. And the overwhelming majority, 74 percent, say their company is prepared to handle a recession if one occurs. Now, this is according to an online poll of more than 10,000 workers conducted by Momentum for CNBC in the last week of November, early December. The survey also found that workplace satisfaction is a key factor in whether employees believe that their company can handle a recession. In fact, it shows that 86 percent of those who say the overall morale at their company is excellent also say their company is prepared to handle a recession. That's more than double the number who say morale of their company is poor. Now, inflation concerns are also growing. More than two-thirds of workers, 67 percent, say the biggest threat to their job is an economic downturn. And that's seven percentage points higher than it was in June of 2019, the last time that CNBC polled workers on this question. So, Sharon, What's the pulse out there then? Is the great resignation over? Are people still, you know, silent quitting and all, quiet quitting and all the rest of it? Or are we starting to see that change uh, a little bit? Kelly, we may have seen a quitting peak because we actually saw in this survey that more than a third of people said that they were seriously considering quitting their job. But it went from 39 percent is what we, what it was um, a few months ago to 36 percent in terms of the number of workers who said that they're seriously considering finding a new job and uh, or quitting their job. And this also is far different than the 20 percent level that we were at during the pandemic around May of 2020. Wow. So we're seeing that people are still saying that they could quit their job. They're confident that they can find another job in a quick period of time as well. But what's interesting is remote workers are far less likely to say they'll be able to find a new job 
with the same amount of pay as full-time workers. Full-time workers are really confident compared to only about a quarter of remote workers say they'll be able to find a job if they don't have the one. Very interesting. Sharon, as always, thank you, Sharon Epperson. And Sharon will be back tomorrow with a fun look at some of the workplace buzzwords that debuted this year and what they reveal about the state of the job market. That does it for us. And while that survey reveals people aren't concerned about job security, they may want to rethink that if FedEx is right. They're announcing more cost-cutting. We'll trade it coming up on Power Lunch, which starts right now. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.